HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I'm back. We're broadcasting live from Feast Portland. I'm Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly. And before we kick things off, we'd like to thank Travel Portland, Stream PDX, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Feast possible. Right now, I'm joined by Jim Meehan. And you guys are going to be listening to Friends Catching Up because I haven't seen Jim in... I don't know. I'm going to guess two years, three years. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. And I have so many questions for you. If there's anybody in the world who doesn't know who Jim Meehan is, he is one of the greatest bartenders that has ever, you know, shaken a shaker. That has ever shaken a shaker at Food and Wine Magazine. (laughs) Jim was uh, the editor, collaborator, genius behind uh, the cocktail guide at Food & Wine that we did for 10 years together, and it goes on. And so I had um, intimate knowledge of your very particular and specific ways about what makes a great cocktail. And, uh, you know, when I first met you, you had PDT, a bar in the East Village, 2007. Uh, Please don't tell. It's still there. It's booming. Now you've opened in uh, Hong Kong and you've done uh, this uh, 500 page bartender's manual that is gorgeous. So you guys, this man we're about to, I'm going to ask questions to, is a genius. I just want you to be ready for that. So welcome, Jim. You actually, I will correct you, I begged my way onto Food and Wine. I think it was in 2006. Yeah. Before PDT opened, I still remember the phone call I got when Rob Willie turned down uh, or, or moved on to details, and you gave me my first job in food media. I guess it was in 2006, so 12 years ago. And um, it's, it's small world. I, I just texted Jess Mishner, uh, who worked with her. you as well. Just her family's in South Carolina to make sure they're doing okay with the with the now tropical storm. But it's yeah, it's really cool to be sitting with you and back. Back in business together for food media. <laughs> Woohoo. So I, I think about your journey and it's really, it's been quite a journey, right? Because I did meet you when you were uh, owning and tending a bar, but you don't, uh, do you make cocktails anymore? I do. You um, do? I, it's funny. I feel like I create more cocktails forever than I actually make myself, um, but I still 
love getting back there. I, um, I think it was just a week or 10 days ago, I was in Bloomington, Indiana at Cardinal Spirits doing a pairing dinner with all spirits distilled in, at Cardinal. And I think we did four courses with the chef, Dean Workerman. And uh, I was back there with the Cardinal Spirits team. It's sort of like a distillery bar where they have a restaurant, uh, a chef who used to be at Per Se and worked with Charlie Trotter. So, um, yeah, I really still love making drinks. Uh, but my staff around 2010 be, uh, kind of help push me out the door <laughs> and how'd that happen I think I, d I sort of looked around at one point and realized that me working four shifts was getting in the way of other people who who could work maybe full-time for me instead of part-time or who were constantly picking up shift because they, they needed to make a little more money and I realized that there were things I could do like the food and wine book that you know I, I look back the first two years I did the food and wine book I worked 50 hours a week at Gramercy Tavern an 11 hour shift at Pegu Club and still was the I, I actually edit, you know, collected and recipe tested all the books at food, and, all the drinks of food and wine. So I look back at the early days. I must have worked 90 hours a week. Wow. And, you know, you sort of get a little older and you, you sort of realize, like, I could stop working hard and start working smart. And, and I think that's when I went home and I never came back to work. <laughs> You, well, you've been working really hard. I'm not sure I quite buy into that. One of the uh, things that I loved about doing that cocktail book with you was you always knew exactly what was going on in the cocktail world, partly because you traveled so much, partly because you created some of the trends that were happening. And I miss that. Like, I miss knowing that. And I, now I've got gotcha. So what are you excited about? What what spirits are you excited about? What bars are you excited about? Oh, my God, I have so many questions it's for you. It's crazy. I think that I look back at that time, and I remember when I started, it was still, the internet was still in its, not infancy, but it was in its sort of, you know, sort of maybe it was a, a tween or I don't know what it was, but it wasn't what it is now. So I remember we stopped sort of just taking on press, you know, releases and started actually calling people in cities and saying, hey, you're a bartender who knows what's going on in Atlanta, what's going on? And then it, I think things have evolved to the point now where we're looking, we're waiting for Eater or, you know, some other um, hip food, you know, media to sort of tell us what's going on. And, and I have to say that for me, they're now, I remember in New York back then there were five cocktail bars and now there are five cocktail bars in Boise, Idaho. So the sheer number of bars is um, daunting. And I find that as I travel, there's competition to, to do I go to the new bar or do I go to the, the old bar like that I, that I know I need to go to. So for instance, like in New York, like I know I need to hit existing conditions and I need to hit Katana Kit and those are Greg Bohm's new projects um but it, you know last time I went I had dinner at Nomad Bar and it's like do I do I go to the place that I know is going to crush it that's been open a few years or I go to the new place that's still kind of getting their feet so I find that you know to sort of pivot from the question that I find myself more and more going to those sort of sort of old standards and revisiting and letting the the sort of new places get their feet under them and and seeing maybe six months later if I still have to go to them. <laughs> I am astonished by the proliferation of bars and also the fact that if you ask someone who's coming, you know, if someone's coming to New York and they say, where should I go? Often the answer is this amazing bar rather than this extraordinary restaurant. And I feel like that's such a sea change. And the likelihood of, well, you would know better, of course, but um, of getting a, a crappy drink in a 
decent bar like has gone down so much like the people just are making better drinks the thing that's changed i think is that in the the sort of early days of this the cocktail culture was incubated in these independently run sort of what it, what they call in london style bars so they sasha's bar julie's bar audrey's bar jushana jay's bar um in new york and now the chefs really chefs in restaurants I, i'm looking really you know the the early the barbara lynch's and the sort of grant Atkinses and the daniel Hooms and um, certainly bars like, you know, re- restaurants like Slanted Door, which had Eric Adkins a million years ago. Like the restaurants are really where I'm looking for cocktails now more than little independently run bars. Um, it's it's Why astonishing. I think part of it is budgets. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is um, it's interesting. I look back. PDT opened in 2007. It was right when the crash hit. And I found that pre-2007, you have these multi-million dollar sprawling sort of like dining clubs and they they all kind of not all of them but a number of them closed or shuttered or reconcepted and i think that the economy has gotten to this back to this point where we're seeing these spectacular two two to five ten million dollar restaurants each bigger and more opulent than the next and i feel like those places are generally open by by chefs and and a lot of them in hotels i mean i remember Fifteen years ago, a hotel would be the last place other than an airport that you'd ever go for a drink. <laughs> and now, you know, hotels are where we're looking for to sort of like lead where the new bars are. So I always relied upon you for the, you know, the spirit forward to think about, you know, is it Japanese whiskey? Like, what should I be looking towards that I hadn't looked towards last year? Not necessarily in a trend i'm like i'm a little bit over trends so it's not that it's that um new importers come and they bring new things or um an area you know develops great distilling that hadn't developed before so i'm admittedly i'm less interested in the trend that what you're seeing what you're seeing in terms of spirits that you're like really excited by yeah i mean i think going back to this idea of coming of age there are so many craft distilleries that have opened in the last 10 years and distilling as a sort of science, it's an art and a science, but as a science, it just takes time to perfect your craft. And, and I think for me, uh, distillers like Todd Leopold in Denver, who's been around a little while, but who's, who had, who recently a couple of years ago installed this three chamber still, which was this unique still that no one had used in a hundred years. Like I'm excited to see what that whiskey is going to taste like when it's fully mature. Or and what's the it's a rye whiskey. It's uh it's it's called it's, Leopold Brothers okay. in Denver. So I can't wait to try Todd's fully mature three chamber still rye. You have distillers like Alan Katz in Brooklyn of New York Distilling, who's sitting on a lot of mature whiskey right now and doing things like uh, apple brandy finishes with those whiskeys. And then you have distillers like uh, Lance Winters at St. George Spirits in Alameda who you know, sold off Hangar One, obviously put a lot of money in his pocket and then, you know, has con- continued to refine his craft and makes great fruit brandies and some really interesting. The last time I visited them, they had uh, some old apple brandies and some old uh, whiskeys as well. So I think that seeing these sort of craft distilling uh, boom over the last 10 years, it's exciting to see who's going to make it and sort of mm-hmm. thrive and who's kind of maybe not going to. And then to see these great distillers kind of come into their own. For sure. 
And when we um, knew each other, you were living in New York City. Yep. And you have moved here to Portland, where we are. Yeah, it's it's exciting when everyone comes to Portland. It's <laughs> and it's a little daunting that everyone came at the same time. But I guess it's feast, so that's what happens. It's feast. Here we are. Uh, but the I remember, and I'm sure more point for you because it was about you. But I can't believe the gym. Me and like the center of the universe is moving to Portland. Like, why? How? Um, how does it feel to be here? Did how did you shut down that talk? I mean, I don't know if it affected you at all. All those people going, why are you, why are you doing this? Yeah, it's it's funny, and I guess uh, funny given our political climate and all the the stuff going on. But I was at a Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Conference event making drinks when. Um, I heard a, uh, sort of one of the speakers talk about how with the internet sort of going online in continents like Africa and just more and more people going online, this conference was about, you know, bringing thought leaders to speak to entrepreneurs. And I was sitting there as like a little tiny baby entrepreneur myself and just listening to this guy say that he, he envisioned a future in which people wouldn't have to all live in cities. And I sort of put that in the back of my head. And then as I sort of, we had, we have, uh, we had our daughter, Olivia, and, and my, obviously Peter has two kids, and I have lots of friends that so have your, kids. Your brother, Peter. Yeah, so Peter <laughs> has two kids. I have lots of friends. Who, you know, I'm, I'm 40, so I have friends who have kids now. And uh, I just, I watched how all my friends moved to Carroll Gardens and Park Slope and sort of got themselves, you know, into the, you know, gifted and talented school sort of race or forked over twenty-five dollars to $50,000 a year on private schools. And, and I started... We lived in a $3,000 a month one-bedroom and needed a $4,000 a month two-bedroom. And I was just looking at the f- expenses and I just, you know, did the math. And I'm just like, this is something you'll do anything for your kids. And, and I just didn't like the math. So I started looking around based on this idea that, I, that I've sort of the seed that I picked up at this Goldman Sachs event that wasn't for me, but I was at. And uh, Portland had a couple of good friends like Daniel Shoemaker and Jeff Morgenthaler and Sean Horde who work with me at, at PDT. And uh, I, people joke that Portland is where grownups go and retire. So I guess I got out here <laughs> early. a little early. Uh, but it's it's got a lot of big city creature features, but it's a very livable. I think it's more of a town than a city. It's very small, but it's uh, it's a great place to live. And 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 I sort of I rolled the dice. And about four months before I really was planning on moving, I reached out to all my employers and said. What do you think about me doing my job from Portland, Oregon? And at this point, I was traveling at least two weeks a month anyway. And they all looked at me and they're like, well, you're never here anyway. You know, what's the difference if you do your job from Portland versus New York? I mean, obviously with PDT, that was a big change. But I had been grooming Jeff and told Jeff a year before I might go that I, if this works, I'm going to make you the boss. And Jeff took that and ran with it and, you know, has run PDT now for four years for me. So my staff, my team at PDT was the most sort of uh, that was the biggest concern and they've done nothing but make me feel smart and proud ever since but it didn't feel like you were you know you were exiling yourself you're like I'm choosing a better life and the best New York you should just shut the fuck up I I kind of I pulled you know people like yourself when I ran into like people who I could trust and would tell me the truth and I think the best bit of advice I got was from Frank Felsinelli and Frank Castronovo in Mexico City at a dinner table. And both of them looked at me like I had six heads. And they were like, we moved from New York once when they moved to L.A. to open up Moomba. And they're like, it was a terrible decision. And he's like, and what both of them said is like, you know, we were 
you know, top of our game when we left New York, came back and went right back to the end of the line. So they both said that it was a terrible idea to move from New York. But then they said, if I left, then not, don't change your email, don't change your phone number, don't even tell anyone you left. <laughs> just go and just act like you're still here. So I definitely, you know, there was, it was noted that I was gone. But for the most part, I sort of kept my phone number and my email and I'm back six or eight times a year. And to be honest, like it's not that a lot hasn't changed, but the culture, the the main players, you know, it's some of the streets are, you know, more recently paved than others. And there's a lot more Dwayne Reeds and Citibanks than there used to and be. And that's about it. Yeah, but it's <laughs> still New York. Tell, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, when I was talking to Kate Crater about the, the state of bars, Kate uh, was the restaurant editor at Food and Wine and a great colleague of yours, Jim. And he... She was saying that one of the interesting things about bars right now is they're multiplying around um, the country. That had never happened before, right? Like we've seen, I don't want to call them chains, but we've seen multiplication of restaurants and now we're going to see multiplication of bars. And you've done that with uh, PDT multiply times one. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And what do you think about that as an idea? I look back. I mean, obviously, if we go back to the f- like 40s and 50s, you had Trader Vic's that sure. kind of became big from one small bar. Um, more recently you had Whiskey Blue from Randy Gerber, which was sort of like, he's the one who just made a billion dollars with, uh, George Clooney and married Cindy Crawford. So he must've done something right. But, uh, <laughs> I feel like the modern iteration of that, of Fridays, for instance, is obviously there's now seven or there's a lot of employees only. Death and Co has just done a big raise and is going to open more bars. We opened a second PDT in Hong Kong and, and a, I was sort of very uh cautious about that but we did a pop-up there and it just went so well we worked with a chef named richard acubus there who's been in that building for probably 10 years he runs a top 50 restaurant in the world and has championed bars and cocktails and mixology for since back to 2009 when i did a guest shift there with lyndon pride and Eben freeman so we felt very confident based on a month-long pop-up and the sort of confidence we have in Richard Acubus that we'd be successful there. And so far, um, speaking of weather, there's a typhoon coming to Hong Kong right now. Uh, but it's it's been good, you know. And, and I feel like there, it's, there's a yin-yang that PDT has where it's like you walk into Crift Dogs in New York and kind of move into this more sort of uh, luxurious lounge versus Crift Dogs in the East Village. And, and Hong Kong is the exact opposite. You walk into this sort of Mandarin Oriental lobby bar, and then you move up to the more intimate sort of cozy PDT bar. So I feel like we've been able to sustain that sort of juxtaposition of high-low, although now we're the low in, in Hong Kong, and uh, it's gone cautiously, it's gone well. I'm not necessarily looking to open up more yeah. of these, but yeah. if we were to find uh, a city and a space and, and partners that would sort of believe in it and support it, uh, we would certainly be open to it. I want to talk about uh, low ABV and this really fascinating, complex moment in uh, the food world where there is a lot of concern about alcoholism, um, alcohol abuse, um, and I don't. It's not an exact corollary, but simultaneously, there's also a, a huge interest in ABV. But let's start with. Um, what are your thoughts around the drinking restaurants mental health? I think that this is a topic that, you know, and I'll add me too, you know, I'll add har- harassment to this 
and the glass ceiling that women, especially mothers, have in our industry. So I think that, um, you know, one good thing that's come from Trump being president is just a lot of a lot of people have sort of woken up to a, a, the, a lot of the really sort of terrible things that we have in our in our there's like a sort of me, a reckoning that a lot of people are having with themselves. It's like, you know, if you want to change the world, you've got to start by changing yourself. And so. I feel like uh, it's a lot that it's all happening at once, but I'm I'm grateful that it's happening, and I think that certainly alcohol is is a part of that. I think that if we look at the role alcohol has had in health, mental health, and 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 in, in how it's had a role in contributing to situations of where harassment was happening uh, and substance abuse, it's it's I'm glad it's happening and I'm glad people are starting to talk about it. And is I, there a way to protect the people in the industry? Protect might not be the right verb, but to, you know, help mitigate against this. No shift drinks. No, no I mean, I think that the, the big things that I've sort of looked at because uh, I've had to have my own sort of reckoning with it as well. Sure. I've been doing this for over 20 years uh, and it's taken a toll on my body. And I've you know, I'm I'm. I have a one-year-old. I'm 42 years old. So, if, you know, 16 years from now, if I want to be, you know, throwing footballs or baseballs or or even just, you know, at the, you know, part of my an active part of my kid's life, I got to be fit. So I think that the it's exciting, you know, on the on the side, you're seeing all the chef cycle events. Mm-hmm. You're seeing uh, sort of industry leaders like Which Daniel. Is a Hume. Event. Yeah, it's like a biking event with. Dave Baron's a friend of mine who who always raises money through Chef Cycle. You have chefs like Daniel Hume or, or Seamus Mullen. You have Matthew Jennings in Boston who just lost like two hundred pounds. He you said have, to me he shed an entire human. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it's, it's extraordinary. It's incredible. So I think that we have these sort of uh, role models mm-hmm. who, instead of just posting images of like kind of hedonistic nights out, that they're they're getting up in the morning and running or or biking or doing. You know, you have a lot of chefs, Bourdain sort of brought a lot of attention to, uh, you know, martial arts. So I think you have a lot of chefs, Salmanov I know does that. Um, so basically, I think that this sort of stuff, you know, is very important to changing our toxic restaurant culture. You know, I talked to Bobby Stuckey about this for my book, and he talked about how important running has been for his career as a sommelier and restaurateur, and how as a, as a chef, as a, you know, he'll work a full shift and basically just have an anchor steam and go home because he wants to get up the next day and run 10 miles. So I think that the challenge isn't getting rid of alcohol or even not having big nights out sometimes. I think it's understanding that alcohol is not salad. Alcohol is chocolate cake. And you don't go to a restaurant and have you know, a chocolate cake when you arrive. And then you have like a couple chocolate cakes for an appetizer and then like a chocolate tart for, you know, you don't have seven chocolate cakes. You have one piece of chocolate cake maybe you share it with your partners when you're kind of full. And I think that what I'm excited about is as alcohol sort of role evolves in the culinary world and hopefully in the bar world as well, that people will drink less, but drink better. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, you know, especially in places like Oregon where marijuana is legal, recreational marijuana is legal. I think as we see marijuana becoming legal uh, nationwide, there's a lot of people who drink alcohol for for almost to sedate themselves or to sort of tune out. They drink it for these for non kind of gustatory, non celebrative, like sort of 
just to dull their senses. And I feel like those people will, will gravitate towards chocolate pot brownies. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, we won't necessarily lose the audience we have that is interested in, in culinary-minded cocktails. I also think that there's still a lot of people who drink who don't drink spirits or don't drink cocktails because they have bad misconceptions about them. So I think instead of getting people to, to already drink four cocktails a week, a week to drink five, we need to reach across the aisle and figure out who drinks zero cocktails a week and get them to drink one or two. And what about the, the ABV, um, low ABV trend, which I think is... It's interesting. I think the low ABV thing drinking. was this sort of Aperol spritz mm-hmm. juggernaut sort of spreading its wings in a, in a sort of... So I think that aperitif and aperitivo sort of cocktails have been, you know, sort of next up on the fashion and the runway, sort of the sort of culinary couture for... they. This was coming whether people were drinking less or not drinking less. So the interesting thing will be whether they hang around and how they hang around. I think that one drink that is very sort of fashionable right now is the Japanese whiskey highball, which mm-hmm. is just whiskey and soda. And and the the way this drink is being marketed right now is through these sort of like machines, like taps that sort of pour high pressure soda and chilled whiskey. And they're they're tuned up so that the strength of the whiskey highball is like right around the strength of like a low ABV lager. So it's a it's a cocktail or a mixed drink that's made for like sort of like light beer drinkers. So it'll be interesting to see the gin and tonic, for instance, has been you know huge in Germany and Spain, Europe. It'll be interesting to see it's popular here, but not quite as popular as it is there. So it'll be interesting to see what after you know people move on to whatever the next fashionable mixed drink trend is to see how these low ABV drinks, if they stay around or if they don't. I thought it was interesting to think about low ABV in the context of the um, the restructured work life mm-hmm. so that people don't have nine to, so many people don't have people nine to five People just work jobs. all day long. They work all day long, but you know, they'll drink like a cocktail all day long. Like it's just, there isn't, I work really hard. Oh, I'm going to have a cocktail. I'm going to have dinner. I'm going to, you know, have dessert. It, much more fluid and you choose your own schedule and maybe you're and it's not the three martini lunch which was part of a working lunch but it's actually no I'm just like chilling out because that's like my life I'm gonna chill with my friends yeah it's and I think that's more of a for me I notice it more of as a west coast thing I mean that's one of the biggest things that I didn't realize when I moved here is when you wake up at nine o'clock in the morning in Portland it's noon in New York City, and it's 5 o'clock p.m. in London. So if you're doing national or international business, the West Coast is just, you got to wake up earlier, and your day is generally going to be over by 3 o'clock. So I think you see a lot of 3 o'clock drinks in the West Coast because people got up, to, you know, got to the office closer to 6 or 7 versus like in New York where they roll in kind of haggard at 9.30 or 10. <laughs> um, what are you looking forward to? What's What's next for you? Like, you've got so much going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I, I think moving to Portland has been a big, like the, the rubber sort of has hit the road as I've realized the limitations that my career has here versus in New York where uh, the what sort of- What are the limitations? I think the limitations, the thing that I've realized after leaving New York is that New York has, because there's finance there that, you know, it's sort of like probably the financial capital of the U.S. and one of the financial centers of the world- because of the amount of tourists that visit New York City with, you know, money to spend and special occasions to have, 
uh, because the sheer number of people there and because people live in small apartments and so they eat out more frequently and they drink out more frequently, people enter are entertaining uh, on a business account there. And going back to that whole idea of like the, the American workday centers around East Coast time. So in Portland, for instance, by 10 o'clock, a lot of bars are, are done serving because the people who have disposable income are going to the office at six or seven the next day. So I've sort of found that I probably am not going to open a bar in Portland anytime soon because of some of those limitations. And as someone who's been in the bar business since I was 18 years old, that was a sort of painful uh, realization because I feel like that's kind of what I love to do. So I think that opening, figuring out how I can remain in the bar business, but maybe not open one here is my biggest challenge. I opened a bar in Chicago this year called Prairie Prairie. School that sadly closed in May. And that was sort of um, a, we did a, I I did so much there that I was proud of and excited about. And and to see that sort of fall through was a, was a sort of big uh, eye-opening experience. So figuring out how I can build. How did that happen? happen? It was, um, it was basically, it's interesting. I feel like I've, I've said it long before I opened Prairie School, but I feel like success is an equation that is, you know, some measure of talent and drive, timing and luck. And I feel like the talent and drive has never been a problem for me. Timing, I've been really fortunate, um, you know, throughout the course of my career. And luck is something that you can't go to college for or, you know, (laughs) like you can't you can't hire for that. And I feel like in some ways we uh, opened across the street from a new Ace Hotel in in one of the hottest neighborhoods, if not the hottest neighborhood in Chicago, and we, we made a couple of crucial, you know, mistakes. Our rent was way too high. Our, um, and the, the place in the neighborhood we were was sort of like a little bit off, a little bit further off Randolph. And, and there was not a lot of parking. And I mean, three years from now, when all the residential that's being built in that neighborhood goes up and the parking lot, perhaps, that they're talking about going across the street goes there, you know, it's, I think you'll be able to open an olive garden and crush it there. But <laughs> we were... A little early and and underfinanced and had very little wiggle room to not be uh, you know just a an all out smash success and I think that is something that um, you just don't you know you just I didn't see coming and and there's consequences to that and what's the permanent lessons from that I think the lessons are. I worked with uh, partners that had long had a lot of experience in in Chicago and. I think that I'm a specialist and aware of my skill sets. And, 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 and so I, I think my natural instinct is to surround myself with other specialists who know, who kind of do something. And, and so we all sort of stay in our lanes. And I think I could have looked at what other specialists who were working with me were doing. And, and I probably should have and sort of maybe understood, you know, gotten more involved in all in some of the other processes than I did. You know, and I, I think the biggest thing was, our our business was closed by uh, I, I thought I knew all the stakeholders and there was little that I know there was a billionaire in San Francisco who was the from what I was told the one who made the final decision and had I known that that was going to be that could have been an uh, an outcome I would have gone and met that person before I opened the bar so I think that that's another sort of thing is I feel like you've got to in this business 
having a relationship with all the stakeholders in your success and failures is really key. And I, and I had a great relationship with my partners and had a great relationship with our financial partners, but I didn't realize that there was sort of, there was a big one, uh, you know, sort of behind the curtain. Yeah. Behind the curtain who, wow. who could pull the rug and, and he had every right to pull the rug. You know what I mean? Like we, so right, you don't begrudge him that it's just no it was, i don't it was like, a new piece of information it's a business yeah. you know what i mean and and for him it's like if he can afford to close you know a business like we we had just been awarded you know jeff had awarded us one of the esquire's best bars in america that month and we had a gq feature coming out and you know we just won a timeout new york or, or a timeout chicago award and there was like all this sort of we were you know we were a semi-finalist you know at tales of the cocktail so we were all this sort of accolades for that first year, we're starting to roll in. And it was just, I feel like had we had a little bit more of a runway, we had eight months, you know, and most of it was during a restaurant apocalypse, cold Chicago winter, you know. So I feel like <laughs> it was, it was tough. Yeah, that's um, right. I, I mean, it's also a reminder that uh, accolades don't pay the bills no and how long a runway you really need i don't know what the number would be but you need like five times what you think you need just um you know it's your get by later money yes uh, well i could talk to you forever but the show has its limits show must go on show, the show must go on um so jim thank you so much for joining me here at beast portland i love being in your hometown i've eaten amazing food here uh i want to and had some good drinks, to be fair. Good. Uh, so I wanted to thank, again, Travel Portland, Stream PDX, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Beast possible. And thanks to Aaron Parecki, the co-founder of Stream PDX, for being our sound engineer today. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. <laughs>